The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today we are joined by Anna Pangrazi. Anna Pangrazi received her private pilot license in 1977, later completing her commercial license and instrument multi-engine and float ratings. She graduated from York University with a bachelor's in economics in 1985 and completed a degree in the humanities in 2002. All of this she has done in addition to accumulating extensive flying experience all over Canada and North America as the president and founder of Apex Aircraft Sales, founded in 1988. Anna also became an agent for the sale of new Cessna aircraft for Leggett Aviation in 1996, and would go on to receive the Robert Ames Gold Sea Star Award from Cessna for excellence in retail sales in 2000 and 2001. More recently, she and Leggett Aviation were named the Eastern Canada Sales Representative for the Cessna Caravan. Anna is a longtime member of the International Organization of Women Pilots and the 99s, continuing to be active in the first Canadian chapter, having held various offices over the years. She has previously been the governor of the East Canada section and also the head of Operation Skywatch, a joint program encompassing the flight monitoring and photographing of land, water, and air pollution in Ontario by volunteer pilots of the 99s in collaboration with the Ontario Ministry of the Environment from 1985 to 1988. In addition to her numerous professional roles, Anna volunteers her time as vice president of the Northern Lights Aero Foundation, an organization formed in 2009 to recognize women who have made significant contributions to aviation and aerospace in Canada. In 2013, Anna received the Governor's Service Award from the East Canada section of the 99s. In 2014, she was inducted into the 99s International Forest of Friendship. She has also been recognized by the 2013 Women's Courage Awards in the Amelia Earhart category and has been recognized by the Women of Influence Organization as a diversity champion for her work on the Northern Lights Aero Foundation. She has also previously been director for the Canadian Aviation Hall of Fame. A member of AOPA, COPA, Women in Aviation International, Women of Aviation Week, and Women in Aerospace Canada, a director of the board for Hope Air, and the current co-chair of Rally for the Cure for the Ewing's Cancer Foundation, Anna is busy coordinating events and air rallies across Canada. She lives in Toronto and has one son, Jesse. I could not be more excited to have her join me today. Welcome, Anna. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for making the time for us. All that to say, how did you get your start in aviation? Oh, it was a long time ago. Um, In 1977, I was a senior in high school um, in grade 12 and in Michigan. And I had a math teacher who um, got permission to teach a private pilot ground school as an elective course. And uh, so I took that ground school for a year and I did very well in the class. And um, I ended up um, going to take the FAA written and I passed the written and started flying that summer. I got my license in three months. Very excited, um, you know, considered doing uh, commercial flying and um, airline flying, but learned that uh, at that time you had to have 2020 vision and um, it, it couldn't just be corrected. So I, I wore glasses from an early age, so that was out. So 
I kind of just, it took me a long time to find uh, what I could do in aviation. And so it's going to be a bit of a long story. <laughs> but I started selling airplanes in 1985 um, with a company at Toronto Island. And in um, 1988, I incorporated my own company um, to sell airplanes. So, so what happened was I, I, I was in Michigan. I got a, a multi, uh, no, I got an IFR commercial license and I ended up meeting a guy from Toronto. I was flying back and forth to Toronto Island and I met a guy in Toronto, ended up um, getting married, moved to Toronto, got a degree, finished my degree in economics from New York University. And, um, started looking around because I really wanted to be in aviation. And I met a woman, Kathy Lang, who was selling airplanes at Northstar down on the island. And so um, I interviewed with her and she said, why don't you come and work with us? And I knew nothing. I mean, I had a pilot's license and a commercial license, but um, it's just a learning process and uh, it's been a great career. So that's how it all started. I am blown away by the fact that you had the opportunity to take a ground school as part of a high school elective. That could have been only what I would have been dreaming about as an option. I know. And I do think um, like AOPA in the United States and there's some other organizations that are trying to get it into the high schools in, in the United States. And I think it's a great thing. Even if you don't become a pilot, it uses a, a lot of skills like, you know, math skills and physics and gets you thinking about how you bring all that kind of knowledge you're learning together to do calculations on, you know, different things. And I, I think it would be a great thing to introduce. Exactly. As you said, even if you don't end up going on to have a piloting career or even have it as a, a hobby, there are still so many wonderful things that you can learn about yourself and the world and how things all come together through ground school. It is a great introduction to a lot of different ideas in a very, I think, very fun way. So I'm glad to hear that there's a movement to incorporate it into high school programs. Yeah, because when you think about it, um, even like weather, I mean, who thought about weather, you know, until you start taking ground school and learning how to fly and, you know, it becomes so much more prominent. And then there's just, you know, engines. Never really looked at engines before until ground school. So, but, you know, you learn so much. And so it was being asked to come work for Kathy Lang that you got into aircraft sales and brokerage. But really, how did that conversation come about? And what was it like when you first started? Well, at York, they had this kind of what color is your parachute weekend course. Uh, so it was interesting and it was, you know, trying to put yourself in a position where you could, um, you know, uh, imagine yourself doing certain jobs. And um, uh, my husband at the time encouraged me to, to look at sales. And so, um, and in the course they said, you know, I mean, it's it's common now to do this reverse interviewing or, um, you know, we, they said, just call up some places, find out what the jobs are like and, you know, see if you can interview them and see if it's something you want to do. So I called a few places and Kathy um, was um, 
one of the first people I called. And so she was quite happy to talk to me and I went down to the island and it was very exciting. And so when she asked me to work with them, it was straight commission. Um, and I didn't make very much money the first year or two, but um, it, it, it was a great opportunity to do something I liked and, you know, learn about airplanes. It, it, there's a, it was a huge learning curve. Um, but, um, and then I met people at the island and uh, was able to rent airplanes. I got my multi-engine license and, you know, as you know, in this industry, you meet a lot of really great people. So that's how that started with her. And now she is the president um, of Northern Lights. And so she's been on our board for, I think, um, you know, eight years, maybe nine years. So it was great. We reconnected after years, you know, and uh, she's uh, also wanting to help more women get into this industry. So she was the first, and I think the only woman to do aircraft sales at de Havilland and she sold Dash 8s, and they've just never had another female sales person. And same thing at Bombardier. And she, um, uh, went, she left to Haviland um, and went back to Bombardier um, years later as a contract administrator. And um, now she's uh, with Mitsubishi in their new program for the MRJ. You touched on a great point there that you meet so many fabulous people in aviation and you never know exactly how you might reconnect with someone down the line. The relationships that you have and the people you meet now will somehow influence you, but also make their way back to you in different ways over the course of your time in aviation. Well, and that's one thing, you know, I've been mentoring young people for a long time. And one thing I like to say is that it isn't who you know it's who you get to know. And that's throughout your career, just get to know people. And, you know, people like to share their stories and it's not, it's not difficult to get people talking in aviation and people, you know, most of the older people in the industry like to promote new people, like to promote the industry and, you know, get people into it. So it is about who you get to know. Mm -hmm. Now, you are an award-winning salesperson when it comes to aircraft sales, having won Cessna's Robert Ames Gold Sea Star Award in both 2000 and 2001. How does the sale of new aircraft differ from used aircraft sales? Well, there's nothing like buying a new aircraft. Um, you know, you get the new leather smell and the warranties and the um, flight training and and you know, an aircraft that's gonna give you no trouble for years, like a new car. Um, and it's just very exciting. I've, I've um, worked with a lot of people and I, I get excited for each and every customer because it's such a great thing to... So when you buy a used aircraft, um, you know, there's always kind of two negotiations, the, the offer to purchase and then after a maintenance uh, inspection is done, you have to negotiate that again, because a lot of times with older airplanes, you're gonna have snags. So, um, but uh, I do it all. So, 
any aircraft is great to own. <laughs> you can buy one. Now, is there a particular aircraft that you enjoy selling more so than others because it's just a more fun experience for the buyer? Um, you know, the Cessna aircraft just built really good planes and um, they're, they're all really reliable, fun airplanes to fly. But they did, they um, had the Cessna 400 um, which I sold several of, which is a low-wing composite aircraft like the Cirrus. Um, and it's, I think it's a nicer flying airplane. They bought it right before the financial collapse in 2008 and struggled with that program over a period of, I don't know, 10 years, and then they scrapped the program. Um, but it was a really beautiful airplane, and I have a lot of time in in those planes. I've traveled all over North America. It's a side stick, and you know it's like 170 knots, so fast and sleek, and that was a fun airplane to fly. And it would be a fun airplane to fly. The only, I guess, sort of new aircraft campaign that I can think of is a Beechcraft campaign from probably the 50s, which was when they released the Beach Musketeer. And they had three very novel for the time women pilots who traveled together in a red, blue, and yellow beach musketeer around to promote the aircraft. And they were dressed in those sort of traditional shirt dresses with the gloves and the shirt, uh, sorry, the shoes and the little hats, and were traveling around with a beach musketeer to promote it. And I can imagine the excitement and fervor around a new aircraft being rolled out, although it may be, be a bit outdated. I think the Beach Musketeer unveiling was maybe the most fun. Yeah. So Mr. Beach married Olive Ann. Do you know about Olive Ann? I know that she was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Beechcraft, Beechcraft uh, uh, Textron just uh, produced a, a 75th year anniversary um, G36. And um, in her, for her, it's called the Oliban, and it's in her very favorite baby blue. And they, they're sold out already. They're only making six of them for next year. And, um, but that's a good story, Oliban. I always have heard wonderful things about Oliban Beach and the fact that she sort of single-handedly ran Beechcraft for a few years. Um, but then, of course, the, her classic beach blue. That is the blue that you see in Beechcraft aircraft, and it is because it was her favorite color. Yeah. Now, with regards to Cessna, you and your partners also recently became the Eastern Canada sales representative for the Cessna Caravan line of aircraft. What was included in the process of becoming representatives for such a large brand like Cessna and specifically for the Caravan? So, um, like I mentioned earlier, I started my business in 1988 and in um, Hangar 12 at Buttonville, I've been in that hangar ever since then. Um, and um, John Leggett is the owner of Leggett Aviation now. His father started it back in the late 40s, and, um, and, and John is now present. And in the early 90s, he became a Cessna service center. And in 96, when um, Cessna got back into producing uh, single-engine piston aircraft, they came to their service centers um, to be the sales distributor. And um, John, of course, is a maintenance engineer and, and uh, 
that was what his company did, didn't really want to do the sales. So they asked me to come and do the sales. And um, it's, it's been a great experience ever since. Um, and then um, with the caravan, they didn't, they went factory direct with most of their single engine line and their jets over the last five years. Um, and so they had one sales guy that was doing all of Canada and he was, and he was doing, um, turbo props. So the King air and the caravan and, the um, and some of the jets too. So he was spread pretty thin and they ha haven't been selling a lot of caravans in Eastern Canada lately. And so they wanted um, some representation. And I've been working for them for a long time and consistently selling airplanes. And so they came to us and asked us if we wanted to represent the line. And I said, yes, yes, of course. <laughs> it's very exciting. It's a great airplane. They've sold 140 of them in Canada. And it's a real workhorse. And so I look forward to doing some sales. Now, who is the typical buyer of a Cessna Caravan in Canada? Well, a lot of the planes are working in the north. Um, you can put them on Amphit floats, and they take a huge, useful load. And um, you can put up to 14 people in them. And so you find a lot of the operators in the north have them. And, you know, they're so reliable. The PT-6 engine is... Um, one of the most reliable engines in the world. So um, for Northern operations, and we have a lot of land in Canada, it, it, it is a, a great airplane. Um, there's also a lot of amphibious caravans down here around Toronto um, that do some of the, you know, Muskoka routes and uh, private, private aircraft that um, people use to go to their cottages and stuff. So it's a very versatile machine. From a sales perspective, what aircraft is maybe the closest direct rival to the caravan? Oh, well, there's a couple. Um, the PC-12 uh, is a really uh, good aircraft that carries a big load and operates all over the north also and does some medevac. Um, and the newest um, competitor is Kodiak. Um, which has also a very kind of caravan looking airplane. Um, and um, they've been doing some sales in Canada over the last, uh, I don't know, nine, 10 years. I think in 2009, they started their deliveries. Um, they don't have the uh, service center support like the caravan has. Um, and, uh, and, you know, Textron is, a big corporation with um, service centers all over the world and so and, and and huge support so that's a big selling um, thing for the caravan now being a Canadian company you also have to manage aircraft through the import and export process as you sell aircraft all over North America what is the import and export process I guess in summary and how might someone better prepare themselves for that process if they are shopping for an aircraft internationally? Yeah, so it gets a little tricky. Um, and um, uh, 
I, I would say that if you're looking for an aircraft that's under $100,000, that you should really try to find it in Canada. Um, importing an aircraft, even from the United States, entails uh, what's called an ITREN, which is inspect, test, and repair as necessary. So what happens is that when you buy a plane in the United States, even if you get a pre-purchase, and I don't, I don't recommend you buy a plane anywhere without a pre-purchase inspection, which gives you a baseline of where the plane is in the moment. But when you buy an aircraft, um, even, like even if you um, get a pre-purchase inspection in the United States, you still have to do an inspection when it gets up here. Um, you still have to have a minister's delegate or someone from Transport Canada take a look at the airplane to issue the certificate of airworthiness. And so when you buy a plane down there, you bring it up here, you do this import inspection, which ends up being like a hundred hour, 200 hour inspection. Um, and we have, I would say a bit higher standards and especially on imports um, when they're coming into the country, you really don't know the final price for the aircraft until that process is done. And that can take, you know, I've seen it take eight weeks. So it can cost an awful lot. I mean, it's basically easily $5,000 and we say five to 10. And then it depends on the, the maintenance status of the aircraft. So, and it's a little bit the same process going back into the United States. Um, so I, I, I say, you know, if, if it's more than 100,000, there is a lot more selection in the United States. And um, so when people are looking at different uh, internet sites, it looks like there's a, um, you know, better pricing down there. But by the time you get it up here, you do the exchange rate and, you know, you import it. It, it can end up being way more expensive than, you know, what you're looking at. And so I guess the best way to prepare yourself for shopping internationally is to try and shop domestically as much as possible beforehand. Yeah, and I definitely recommend using a broker. I mean, I, I, I've, I, I've been in the business, you know, for 30 some odd years. And so I know all the pitfalls of what, um, you know, you, you need to look for. And a lot of people, they, they don't realize that you can look at an airplane that on paper looks good and it says, you know, the engine has 300 hours on it, but that engine might be 20 years old. And so, you know, if you're going to do a commercial operation, it has to be less than 12 years, you know, and when it, an engine is 20, 25 years old, you, you, you know, there can be underlying problems, especially if it only has 300 hours on it. So, um, you know, we've seen a lot of things we can um, help people avoid a lot of the pitfalls. And, and if nothing else, what I recommend is that you deal with a reputable mechanic who is going to maintain the airplane for you, who has done imports. So they, they're not reinventing the wheel. And if they've done imports, then they kind of also know really what to look for. Now, how has COVID impacted the way the aircraft sales are done? It, you know, for the first two or three months last uh, in March when the COVID happened, um, we didn't really do many aircraft sales. It kind of came to a, uh, a stop 
but um, after, you know, we, after that initial 10 or 12 week period where people were coming to grips with the, the, the virus and that it was going to be with us for a while and um, flying is one of those things that you can do and a lot of people do it solo and um, so a lot, I, I had several airplanes for sale at the beginning of the summer and then people decided to keep their airplanes. So um, the, the um, COVID-19 pandemic has actually created a, um, uh, a, a, lim a limited number of planes in the market. So um, because people are tending to keep them, um, there's limited supply. And aircraft uh, buying and selling is really uh, uh, based on um, supply and demand. And so as the year went on, the pricing of aircraft went up. And so it's, it, it, it's become harder for people, but sales have been consistent. Um, there's always someone out there to buy them. We have done several uh, deals into the States and mainly sight unseen. Um, so they've had to either um, hire a local mechanic. Um, we have taken uh, uh, airplanes in the United States for pre-buys, but when we're pretty confident that they're not gonna have any issues. Uh, so so um, I was kind of surprised how it went over the year, but um, it's actually been a really good year for general aviation. Now, with all the different tasks that are encompassed in your role as an aircraft broker, are there specific qualifications or training needed for this position? Um, I, didn't, I didn't have many when I started. Um, I had a dream. <laughs> no, uh, um, it, you know, it helps to have, um, it, it helps to have a knowledge of aircraft um, and it helps to be a pilot. And, but it's like um, any other business that it's really about building relationships and trust. And um, I think that's um, what we've done at my company for a long time is we've got a really good reputation for being very uh, fair with people and you know trying to make the deals as smooth as possible and good for both the buyer and the seller. And, and so it, you know, that's the biggest thing I think that in life, as we discussed before, it's just making those relationships and doing what you say you're going to do and, you know, being honest and, um, and, and open and transparent with people. Um, because it's not always like that. And, and sometimes people get hurt in aviation and you hate to see it. Absolutely. And now, it's not always the new buyer or the, I guess the seller that is the one delivering an aircraft to the new owners. You also have ferry pilots. What are some of the requirements that you have for the ferry pilots? Well, it really depends on the insurance company um, and what they require for individual airplanes. And um, it's just, uh, it depends on the airplane and your experience in the airplane and, you know, the individual, whoever owns the airplane and they feel comfortable. It's, so it's not necessarily black and white. It comes down to so many different factors as to who could do a ferry flight, what type of aircraft it is, and where they're going. Right. Now, outside of your professional roles in aviation, you also take time to be very active and as a member of numerous volunteer organizations, 
such as the Northern Lights Aero Foundation, where you serve as the vice president. Can you tell us a bit more about what NLAF does and how it came to be? Sure. So um, it, we started it in uh, 2008, and um, I, I helped to start it with uh, several other 99s in the Toronto area. And we started looking around. There were some older members who um, had never really been recognized in the industry. Um, there's very few places that recognize um, people, COPA had some, they used to have these dinners where they would recognize people and now they do it through their, um, through their, uh, convention and they have some scholarships and stuff like that. And then you have the, um, Canada's Aviation Hall of Fame, which is a really great, um, institution and recognizing really prominent Canadians, but out of the 220, um, people have been inducted into Canada's Aviation Hall of Fame. There's only, I may be off on this a little bit, but six women. And it's really a lifetime award um, where, you know, the people who are recognized have devoted their whole lifetime to aviation. And you don't find that with women because, as you know, in the past, women um, were the um, caretakers. And um, really, a lot of women didn't even start flying until their 50s and 60s and they weren't welcome in the airlines and you know the military and all that kind of stuff so in 2008 we thought looked around and we started with one um one recipient um heather sifton who was um the owner of buttonville airport so a local woman here who'd been forever 99 she was a pilot herself she was a philanthropist and she gave a lot to the community and she was getting older and retiring and had never been recognized. So she, we, she was our first recipient. And I think our second recipient was Kathy Fox, who again, had never been really recognized. And she, um, you know, uh, just has done everything from instructing, charter, parachuting, um, NAV Canada, and now the um, TSB. And uh, she was, uh, um, a great person to recognize. And then we realized that, you know, recognizing one woman a year wasn't going to get us very far. And we increased it to, I think, five one year. Now we're up to eight um, recipients. And it really is the goal to try to bring more visibility to all these fabulous women in Canada who have been doing great work all along, but have not um, been in the public eye. And I think when, um, you know, there's that saying, if you can see it, you can be it. Um, and that was our impetus was to try to bring more visibility. So when we do these dinners, we try to get as much, um, exposure for the recipients as we can in their local papers, but also, you know, we've had some national stories and in the aviation, um, magazines for sure and uh I, I i truly believe they that there's a lot of people doing a lot of great work right now um elevate kendra and uh, all the women in elevate and um um marie goyer who's doing the fly it forward thing um it just takes everyone to really bring more visibility um and and bring the excitement of what this industry is um, because it's um, 
you know, it's such a great in industry with a lot of passionate people and you don't find a lot of people who, you know, are grumbling about being in this industry. So I, I, I would like to see a lot more women and I think it's changing. This pandemic is a real step back once again, but um, I, I see uh, so many young women now who are very excited about it. And I, I think we will be changing those numbers. Um, you know, I think we'll be moving the needle. Now, I've been very fortunate to have attended different Northern Lights gals over the years. And with everyone I speak to who has been in attendance, you always leave so motivated. And even if you're not a recipient, you're just somehow proud and excited and you leave with a sense of all these new things that you want to want to do. You've seen all these women uh, celebrated and they just inspire you so much that you want to be there 12 months later for the next one and can only wait to think of all the things that you yourself will have completed in the next uh, year. They are a fabulous event. They are so welcoming. I, I don't think I would ever want to miss one. Um, they're just the, they're just the best. And that, that's the stories I love to hear. And I've talked to so many young, young women who, you know, have had setbacks in their own life and their own flying journey. And then they'll come to the dinner and they'll go, okay, I'm, I'm going to do it. I can do it because I see all these women who have done it. And um, what, what's really amazing to me, and I get chills thinking about it because it's I, I, I also have that same reaction when I go to these dinners that it's so exciting. But what's interesting to me is that a lot of times, you know, we'll go through this whole story of this woman's life and at the end they'll go, and she has four children. And I'm like, wow, you know, it, I mean, it, it really is an industry that you can, you can have children. And I've heard people say, oh, that's, you know, you have to be away for so long and you have to, you know, you, you can't, um, be the caretaker. And I don't think that's true. I think everyone has to forge their own journey, but, um, any, any industry, you know, it has its demands and, um, and people just work through it. You know, it's, it's, it's best to pick a good partner who's going to help you along the way. But, um, you know, I wouldn't, I, I, you can have kids. It's not an industry that, you know, women don't have children. <laughs> so they just, you just get along. You just do it. Mm -hmm. No, they are truly so fabulous. And it's women of all different ages, backgrounds. Some are moms and some aren't. And you just get to see such a cross section of women that are involved in the Canadian aviation industry. And there's no way that you can leave one of those events without just feeling excited that you just were part of the event for the night as a guest. Yeah, that's great to hear. That's what we like to hear. Now, originally you had started with one recipient a year, which moved to five and is now eight. But how does the NLAF team select their recipients? Well, um, we have outside judges. So they, um, you know, we, we take nominations. Um, we did not take them this year, but we will starting in January for 2022. And um, we had, I think, 60 nom nominees um, in 2020. And, and so it isn't an easy process. And the, so the judges give us their results. We also do, uh, um, as a board member, there's 10 of us, we judge them. We weight the judges and we have a 
you know, a meeting where we just, you know, discuss the results. And I have to say that um, it's usually um, very clear who the recipients will be that year. Um, you know, there's really many good nom nominations, but um, every year it seems like there's that eight, you know, eight to 10, there's, you know, sometimes we have to have a little discussion um, about um, a couple of the nominees, but it's usually pretty clear who's, who's going to uh, be the recipients. Now, if someone wanted to get more involved with the Northern Lights or be involved in their mentorship program, how does that work? Yeah, so our website is northernlightsarrowfoundation.com. And um, there, you can sign up in the mentorship program there. Um, you can sign up as a, a volunteer. We, we have a list of volunteers, and we haven't really called on them much because of the pandemic in the last year. Um, we also do a lot of outreach, um, uh, air shows and um, events. And so we get the volunteers involved doing that. Um, yeah, so just go on our website and, or, you know, there, there's info at northernlightsarrowfoundation.com. You can email us if you want to get involved. And we have a speaker's bureau um, also. And um, we have the Judy Cameron Scholarship. There'll be other scholarships coming up. So there's ways to get involved. And that's very exciting to hear going forward that Northern Lights will come out on the other end of the pandemic stronger than ever with as many wonderful things planned as they had previously. Can I give that plug of, um, you know, we are now going full uh, steam ahead on planning our gala for October 16th. Um, it's at the Sheridan um, Hotel in Richmond Hill. <laughs> and um, and so our, um, we are now taking, you can now register to go. It's, uh, just go to our website. There's a buy tickets and you can buy a ticket to attend. Now we've previously had guests speak about mentorship and the importance of having mentors throughout your career. How do you see increased mentorship of women influencing the aviation industry overall? Well, I think that, um, you know, there are systemic problems in aviation Obviously, um, you know, back in the 80s, I have friends who have been flying for the airlines since that time. And, you know, by the mid 80s, you know, it was like four or 5% of commercial pilots were women. And, you know, now it's like 5%, maybe 6%. The, the numbers haven't increased. And, uh, you know, it, it, it has been um, a, a very male dominated um, industry and I really think that for me anyways and for other women that I see getting involved in organizations like Elevate like Northern Lights like the 99s or women in aviation or the Canadian women in aviation um, conferences every two years and they're doing a great job over this pandemic it really does help to number one have those relationships um, have the ability to call someone or talk to someone who can, you know, help you navigate the um, flight training or the organizations. And by um, connecting you with people they know in the industry, and that's how it is for men. And it, it's just easier for men to 
you know, mentor other men. And not that the, uh, I know a lot of women who have had male mentors, but I really do think that it helps to get involved with women and have that support group. Uh, and I, I see it. I mean, in our, in our 99s chapter, we've had like 20 new members in the last year all very young women, all doing um, some kind of aviation and very excited about it and very, you know, I, I see that it's changing and I, I know now, I mean, the good thing about um, 2021 is that most major corporations understand the benefits of diversity and inclusion and most organizations are now spending money to promote women and women of color, people of color, uh, and people um, uh, of um, different gender classifications. Uh, um, you know, I think it's really important to have diversity and, and most corporations are recognizing that. So uh, kind of a long-winded um, way to say, I think that um, the prospects in aviation are much greater today than for women. I know recently uh, Harvard Business Review released a study that they had, uh, rather it was more of an opinion piece, but on the idea of don't just mentor women and people of color, sponsor them. And I think we've seen a huge change in the way that we have scholarships and um, bursaries specifically for women in aviation. Uh, the 99s were the one that I was first introduced to when it came to aviation scholarships for women, but with the bursaries done through Elevate Aviation, the Judy Cameron Scholarship through Air Canada and the Northern Lights Aero Foundation. There are all these new opportunities that are able to sponsor and help fund women and people of color within the aviation industry. And it is those differences helping people that were traditionally excluded from the aviation industry now to help sort of relieve a bit of the financial burden to get into it. I think that is something that we're seeing more and more of and it is making the difference. Yeah, and I think um, that's one of the, it's been the one nice thing at our dinner too, is we see so much networking going on, you know, it's very exciting to see people getting connected. Um, and so, and that's very important. Now you're very fortunate having had the opportunity to network, uh, it's all about who you get to know, and then with the women that are celebrated through the Northern Lights, to have so many different women uh, who you could choose from and just people overall, but who is someone in aviation you admire and why? So I talked about it earlier. Um, so I'm going to talk, I mean, there's so many women. I, 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 I could pick, you know, out of any one of our recipients. Um, but um, Kathy Fox is someone that I've long admired um, for uh, a lot of different reasons. Um, and if you know Kathy, you know she has a very gentle manner. Um, but she's very competent and um, the way she uh, wins people over is very interesting to me. It's a very questioning, you know, like a gentle way of saying, you know, don't look at it this way or see, the, see it this way. And, um, you know, she's just been so, um, successful in everything she's done and I've known her a lot I've known her 30 years and um, you know to see her be the chair of that TSB um, is incredible and I just think she brings so much 
uh, grace and understanding to that role. Um, and I don't, I, I don't, I, I just think she's a great person to a great friend. Now we've been very fortunate to have had Kathy on as a guest previously, and she has been named as a source of admiration from several of our guests, which truly just is a testament to how lovely, competent, and how willing she is to make time for everyone. Yeah, that's, you know, uh, when, when we select our recipients, it's not a criteria, but I, I don't know if you've recognized it, but most of the women who have been, become recipients are those who are helping other women who have you know, been involved in organizations that help women, that bring other women along. And that's a really good quality, you know? And um, it, you know, it, it, it helps you just to be a better person, to help other people, obviously. But um, so it, it's, it, and it's great to meet all these women who are so involved like that. No, this is not uh, the first time this has been said on our show, but we, we rise by lifting others. That is what I think really is so powerful for women in aviation right now is the networking, paying it forward and always giving back. I find that women in aviation, within my experience, have always been so willing to help each other. Yeah. Well, if I can have a second woman that I really admire. Um, so do you know Claire Lemiski? I met Claire a few years ago, and we've sort of crossed paths a few different times. I think she is just the loveliest. I was, I'll say I know of Claire and we have met. You know, she's she's very young, but she's got a great way about her. And uh, her thing is she'll just help anyone do anything, anytime. And, and she was like that with Bombardier, which helped her get into the Q400. She did the the Q400 um, shuttle between Montreal and Toronto, and then eventually get on with Porter. And um, she's just um, a young woman I really admire a lot for how far she's gotten very quickly. And recently she's ferrying Q400s around the world. And I talked to her today and she just got back from Tanzania and she's been to Greece and, you know, ferrying Q400s. So quite a lot of fun during her pandemic downtime. That would be a lot of fun. I think everyone else is sort of staying at home and you have the fortune of taking a Q400 to Tanzania. Yeah. Now, would you please share with me a favorite memory or highlight from any point in your aviation career? Oh, there's been many all around um, flying, which is the fun part of the job. So, <laughs> um, so in 2005, I, I met an older man who bought a new 172, and he bought three other new airplanes from me, and um, the last one was a Cessna 400 that I think I told you about earlier, um, and um, we had the opportunity to fly a lot together over about five or six years, and um, one of the best trips we did was down to down the Caribbean line. So 23 other airplanes at the International Air Rally. And we met in Fort Lauderdale, went over to the Bahamas, down to um, Dominican Republic. And then to fly that line in the Caribbean, it's so interesting. And every country, I mean, every island is a different country. We did eight islands and, uh, and you know, it's trips like that when flying that you just, um, 
you know, you learn so much and you meet great people and it's, it's a very fun part of the job. I don't know how you would be able to top that really. <laughs> I know it, it is, it's, it's amazing, but we did, you know, we did Island hopping and yeah, we've, we've flown to Vegas and, um, did the, um, the Reno Air Races, which is another really fun thing to do. I've been to the Red Bull Air Races, and yeah, well, flying is uh, flying is very exciting like that. Now, before we wrap up today, where can our listeners find you on social media? Um, well, there's apexaircraft.com. There's um, I have a Facebook page, Legged Aviation. They have a Facebook page. Um, I, I personally have a Facebook page. You can look me up. Um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Don't do Twitter a lot, but Instagram. Perfect. We will be sure to have all those links in the episode description for our listeners. Anna Pangrazi, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's been great, Laura. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searle. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.